Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I'm really excited for this episode today. This was the idea of Chris Johnson, my co-conspirator of Back from the Abyss. And he said a few months ago, he's like, why don't you have Jeremy Dubin come on? Because uh, you guys are both addiction people and you probably have a lot to say with him. I thought, yeah, we got to do that. And so finally here I have, sitting across from me, my friend and colleague, Dr. Jeremy Dubin, who is the medical director of the Front Range Clinic, which has 20 addiction treatment clinics all over Colorado. And we've known each other a long time. Yeah? Yeah. Over a decade. Yeah. You're a little more gray than when I saw you last. <laughs> you too. I guess I don't think... I feel you like too, I'm, my friend. I am more gray. <laughs> but yeah, I feel like I have barely seen anyone in a year. Have I not seen you in a year? But probably. Maybe. Yeah. Just stalking outside your house. That's it. Yeah. Um, so I thought what we'd do today is uh, I emailed Jeremy a couple weeks ago and I said, let's do the episode focused around what works and what doesn't in addiction treatment. So I asked Jeremy to come up with five things, his top five things that work for substance abuse treatment and don't work, and five things that definitely do not work. And I came up with a list as well. We did not discuss our list, so I'm very eager to hear what Jeremy has to say. So we're just going to go back and forth. We'll start with what works, and I'm hoping these will open up a discussion and anecdotes shared and you know, maybe even some disagreement on what works and what doesn't. So number one, Dr. Jeremy Dubin, what works in addiction treatment? So this is a fun exercise <laughs> you gave me. Uh, you know, it's really easy to get into the weeds and you start thinking about medicines and, and uh, specifics, but I think it's important to come up at 30,000 feet and think about this. And one of the things I've seen work in addiction is to create a non-judgmental, empathetic team. So often people know that they need to create a team for themselves, but they allow people to be on that team that don't have an understanding of addiction that don't allow themselves to get educated on it and how to support them the best. And sometimes they'll get some work done with, let's say you or groups or a counselor and physician. But then when they get home, it's kind of like they're two steps forward and one step back because it's like, uh, whether it's their spouse or their friend or their kids or their parents, uh, their support staff at home isn't supportive. Mm-hmm. So is this a real, this is, you know, we'll speak about this. I hope as we go through this, that this is a really, this is a family condition. This is a family disease. So folks that put together a team, you gotta, you gotta make sure that team know, is on their team mm-hmm. and that they don't have different agendas. Yeah. So yeah, how would you recommend that? How do you find, <clears throat> excuse me, an empathetic team that's on your side that shares your agenda? Yeah. Not easy. Uh, I think you're lucky if you have one person on your team at all. Sometimes when you come in to ask for addiction, treatment for addiction, often people are scared to come in anyway. So if you're lucky enough to have someone that's on your team, it's a great opportunity for education. It's easy to educate someone that's suffering with addiction. They know the pain. They know what they're going through. You're not trying to convince them that this has been probably the hardest thing that they've ever tried to create a strategy to get on top of. The folks that are usually the harder seller, the parents, the friends, the spouse, the person that's their support team at home. So bringing them in and, and trying to educate them, whether it's from the counselor or the doc or a peer, or a case manager, just continuing to give that same languaging, and we can go through the, what you know, maybe what that languaging would be, mm-hmm. uh, to to that family member to be to be clear, you are a vital spoke on this wheel, and as your loved one goes through this, it's not going to be perfect, and the outcomes aren't going to be exactly as you picture them, 
but here's how you can here's statistically how you can help them the most. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it really challenges their belief structures on what they think about addiction. Yeah. So maybe part of building a non-judgmental team is, as you said, actually bringing the family in, getting family involved, and sort of educating them, bringing them over to the side of of the treater and say, look, this is this is a powerless kind of thing. Like your addicted family member is not actively mindfully trying to ruin your lives, but this is, they're out of control and they can't stop. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, and and it's, it's not as difficult as you think because these people love the person that's suffering with addiction often. Mm -hmm. So it's tapping into that empathy that they have already, but kind of raising the bar on their education with it, that this does have potential roots biochemically. There are brain changes that have occurred and that this is not, we don't have a cure. I mean, I hate to say that, but you know, as we talk about this today, uh, what we have are tools right now to, to treat this like a chronic condition, just like diabetes. You'll see me make that analogy a lot through this talk mm-hmm. or our conversation today. Uh, so until we have a cure, mm-hmm. you know, we gotta, we gotta use what works out there and, and, well, one of my other ones is people. Yeah. We need people. Yeah. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, so my list was in no particular um, ranking order. But the first thing that I wrote down in what works with substance abuse and addiction treatment is accountability. Um, I know when I'm evaluating people with substance abuse addiction, I am always thinking, okay, what kind of context of accountability do they have? And actually, if people are on you know, UAs, BAs through probation, if people are being monitored at work, if people have some kind of significant legal or medical or financial contingencies, I think, oh, yay. But what so often happens with addiction is by the time people show up, they've lost everything or nearly everything. And so when they try to come up with, well, what do I have to lose? Well, most everything's gone. So I'm always trying to figure out how to build in more accountability. And um, that could be like, for example, let's say you have an adult child or older adolescent child at home that's struggling with substance abuse. Well, you, you can't control what they do, but sometimes I'll suggest to parents, hey, if you're paying for the car and the car insurance, you could make driving contingent on clean UAs. And then if you're child decides to continue using, again, you can't stop them or control that, but there's accountability in that they're not allowed to drive. So, and I think when I think about prognosis with addiction and substance abuse, I, that's one of the biggest factors. And we talk about people being motivated or, you know, wanting to change. Well, some of the people who most want to change are people who have accountability. So I'm thinking of, you know, the research that shows that who does the best in addiction treatment pilots, doctors, nurses. Right, most to lose. Yeah, mm-hmm. the people who are being monitored have a lot mm-hmm. to lose. Who who struggles the most? People without a job or a home or a pet or people who are just disconnected from everything and no accountability. So, um, yeah, I'm always trying to think about how can we ramp up accountability. And I agree with you, bringing in family is a huge part of that if anybody's still around because the family may well be able to structure some accountability to help people stay on course. A lot of folks have lost hope. 
that have gotten that far. They got end up in your office, and <clears throat> if it's voluntary, you're lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that in the last ten, fifteen years, and we could talk about this some more with with uh, the last fifteen, twenty years specifically, with some of the addition of medications. I think that we do have a possibility now to say that we do have hope for you, that we have a way to potentially create a more stable recovery plan that has some data, some statistics behind it. I'm not saying that we were doing terrible in the 80s and 90s, but, you know, 20% ain't that good, you know, or less than that mm-hmm. as far as long-term recovery or, or, or a, a positive urine drug screen, let's say, in a year. It's kind mm-hmm. of the way we talk about it, right? Um, so there, I think initially it's important to give them hope. You know, that yes, you've hit, you hit Bana, but you know, I wouldn't do this for a living if I didn't think that there was some potential for you to, to, to claw your way back out of this. Yeah. But it's tough. I hear you. I hear you when it comes, when someone has nothing to lose, you know, it's hard to instill that hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think your clinic does this as well. This idea of using UAs as sort of motivation and accountability. Yeah, I mean, I think that urine confirmations and, and point of care testing and confirmatory testing, I think, uh, is an on ongoing tool that can be used with patients depending on where their pro- progress is. So in other words, I agree with you that, <clears throat> excuse me, it has a role for accountability. How you doing? You know, things are going. You know, things are going a little south. Let's pull you in a little closer. And then, ideally, in an ideal world, you are engaging that patient enough that they get to a place where they're on the same page with you. It's almost like they're thanking you or grateful that you're doing, you have this, I hate to use the word surveillance. You have this intervention, this tool that you have made a deal with them. And this kind of comes to that whole therapeutic relationship, the importance Mm -hmm. of that relationship where you kind of already laid it out, you know, Mr. Smith making that name up, you know, (laughs) you, you, you know, we, we had this conversation, you know, uh, things have been going really well for you. And, uh, we checked, you know, we do this with your urine once every two weeks and uh, let's make a deal. This is someone that's probably in, in treatment for a while already and trusts you. Let's make a deal. If you, if you, are, you have a urine confirmation that's positive for, let's say, illicit opioids, let's make a deal that, you know, we already know what we're going to do. I see you weekly, or you got to go see your counselor more, or we're going to check into a hospital. And so if you can create that agreement before you actually go, you continue treatment, it's, it's kind of a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. Where you're like, you know, no problem. It's, it's, it, and then that's the importance of that that empathetic approach to it, that this isn't bad or good. This isn't positive or negative. This is someone that's struggling with a chronic condition that just like in diabetes, sometimes will eat chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. You're still going to give them insulin. You're still going to try to help them. You're going to make sure they don't go blind and their kidneys don't fail and they don't have a heart attack. It's the same idea. Mm-hmm. So I think that the, it really, it's funny how we, as we continue to talk about this, it all kind of comes back to that relationship, the people on your team. How do you, empower the urine confirmation to be a, a tool f- with the for the patient not just for the provider mm-hmm. yeah that's an evolution i think for you know yeah yeah i think like you know in the legal system uas are used uh sort of as fear tool yeah, punitively. punitively punitively yeah. Yeah. yeah and i think in my clinic and it sounds like in front age clinic what i t- tell people is like this is part of seeing what if it's working yeah like uh, i'm not going to fire you for positive UAs. Um, and the few times I've had to fire my addict patients, it's because they just keep lying to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I tell people, and this is actually true, I say, I've had at least a couple people off the top of my head tell me, hey, Dr. Hecock, I just injected in the parking lot. 
And what I told both of those people was, I'm so glad you told me. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Their prognosis is so much better, believe it or not, right? Mm-hmm. Statistically, from my mm-hmm. understanding, mm-hmm. than the person that wasn't being honest. You know, and if, if you think about it, you're on their team. You work for them in a way. And if things are going south, you're just going to recommend a higher level of care. Whether they step up to it or not, that's another thing. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not easy. But I, I think that that speaks to the doc you are. I mean, the relationship that your patients feel comfortable enough to talk to you about that. Unfortunately, I think the urine drug screens have become punitive mm-hmm. in so many different circles, including medical circles. That's true. You know, and so, so patients are really reluctant to buy in that, that these are diagnostic tools, just the same way that we check blood pressure. If you gave someone a blood pressure medicine to see if it was working, it's the same idea. It's it, that's all it is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, mm-hmm. it's tough. Yeah. yeah. Okay. What's your number two? Number what two. Works? Number two, uh, clarity with goals. Mm. So in other words, often people come into treatment and not only the patient, but the provider, the family member, the probation officer, the cousin, and, you know, and the case manager all have different ideas of what they want, what the goal is. And I think it's important to, to step back, especially as medical providers first, What's our goal? Because that's where you do have different spokes on the wheel. Our goal is you're not allowed to overdose and die. Not allowed to get hepatitis C and HIV and die. Mm -hmm. And that's our first goal, right? (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean that we're not interested in healing and recovery and long-term strategies for people to get better. But that is the medical spoke on the wheel. Mm -hmm. So you could see how some folks can really get into that harm reduction place where they're just like, well, as long as you're not overdosing, we're good. Mm -hmm. Yet the cousin or the sister or the spouse says, I just don't want him to do drugs anymore. The case manager and, other ca- and the counselor says, well, he's going to do drugs, but I just don't want him to do heroin. And then you ask the, per- you ask the patient, right, the last person you ask, and, and they have all sorts of different ideas. So I think, I think uh, uniformity with goals is important. And I think also challenging the idea that recovery doesn't equal the absence of drug use. It's often a, a myth out there. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea is to start to try to challenge problem use. Use is it's going to kill you. The idea that you are not holding the reins of this use. And so when you're creating these, I think that we have a role to help them articulate what those goals are. But I think it's important to not make them unrealistic. If you have some, And that depends on the patient, right? I mean, if you have someone that has really been challenged for decades, in and out of rehabs, overdoses, uh, does not have social support, has co-occurring psychiatric disorders, if your goal is complete abstinence for the rest of their life, you're going to be disappointed. Mm-hmm. They're going to be disappointed. So it's important to put the safety nets up for those folks so they don't die while you're figuring out that successful recovery plan. So I think clarity with goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did an episode on this in the season one about, it's called Why It's So Hard to Be a Good Therapist. And I shared my own experience of, in my early years, people came, would come in and I would have, have my goals all set for them. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you're going to do today. Yeah. I know. <laughs> and then I'd realize, oh, wait, it's probably most important that I hear what their goals are. And it's endlessly interesting. I mean, um, I have some people come in and their goal is, I say, wait, what's your major goal? My major goal is not to take any psychiatric medications. And I'll ask them, or is it a goal to function better or feel better? I, mean, I have a number of people like, no, I just don't want to take any. Mm-hmm. That's like, okay, that's important to know. Yeah. Um, or some people come in for addiction treatment. I just want to be able to smoke weed. Mm-hmm. 
that's it. And, and it's again, so helpful to start with that to, Oh, now we know. Yeah. I think um, alcohol is a great example mm-hmm. with alcohol use disorder. Um, you'll see folks that'll come in and say, I just want to cut down. Mm-hmm. I don't want to stop drinking. And then, you know, us in the addiction circles, we kind of, we know that some people can pull that off. And then most that really have a severe use disorder probably need some level of abstinence from it to be successful, mm-hmm. but it's still a place to start with somebody. You know, so the idea that they want to cut down, that's like we were saying before, maybe engage that page, that person in saying uh, something along the lines of that makes a lot of sense. Let's go forward with that. What's the date though, that you would, we would come back and say, this didn't work. Let's mm-hmm. make an agreement together. So if we're starting March 1st, okay, let's try to cut down to a couple drinks a night from what you're drinking, the handle of vodka a day or something mm-hmm. like that. And we'll help you. And I'm going to help you. Your wife's in here. We're going to help you. Here's some medicine. We're going to talk to a counselor. We're going to get on top of this. Maybe we're going to talk about groups. You got to get rid of that guy you hang out with after work. I mean, whatever it is. But if they don't get to that goal in a certain amount of time, then I think it's, that's almost an opportunity that you've set up to say, I'm going to need to challenge your goals. I'll still work with you if that's what you want to do. But I'm telling you, if you want to get to where you wanted to get to, we got to probably do something else. Mm -hmm. So it also gives you an opportunity to change the treatment plan if you have an agreed on goal. Mm -hmm. Because it's like alcohol is a great example. Like it's not always abstinence or bust. You know, it's, it's sometimes people are just cutting down. It's uncommon in our circles because we tend in the medical community to see the more severe folks or have the condition more severely. But in the behavioral circles that aren't seeing the docs and things like that and the and, and nurse practitioners and PAs like that, um, there's people that create successful recovery plans that you and I probably never meet mm-hmm. because they don't get to that place. They actually were able to cut down on their alcohol. And I only learned that working with counselors and psychologists that, that told me that, where I would think that everyone was, you know, severe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that one a lot. Let's see, my second one is what works Suboxone buprenorphine. So listeners to this podcast will know that I'm a huge fan of Suboxone. And, you know, I remember going into psychiatry thinking, uh, I guess I'm not going to be like the kind of doctor that saves people's lives, like a trauma surgeon or, you know, like an oncologist. And then... Then you found buprenorphine. <laughs> well, I hope, hopefully I'm helping other people not die. But when buprenorphine came on the scene, it completely changed the world. Game, it changed. Game changer. Yeah. I mean, there are a few things I think that have utterly changed the world of medicine, particularly addiction medicine. And I, th- I just can't imagine life before Suboxone buprenorphine. And I'm so grateful. And... Lately, I've been noticing another wonderful thing about it is not only is it a bulletproof vest against dying of opioid addiction, I've been seeing more and more people come back and tell me, you know, it's helping me not do meth. And it's very interesting. So what people say is, because meth, you know, a little bit of meth will keep you up for a day or a day or two, a lot of meth will keep you up for three or five days. So a lot of people use opioids, as you know, to come down from meth. But if you're on buprenorphine, you can't use opioids. So if you also got a meth thing going, you're in a pickle because especially if you have accountability, my first thing, because let's say you have accountability that you actually got to go to work or you got to pick your kids up. Or now you can't sleep. Like if you can't shoot heroin or you can't take a bunch of oxy, you cannot sleep. So what are you going to do? And it's it's been very interesting. It's not a not a fix or a cure, but I've been hearing more and more from my patients struggling with meth that the suboxone is, has this sort of secondary effect to help not fix that problem, but help them. 
I, I agree with you. I, not to get too technical. <clears throat> um, and I think you, you, I'm sure know this, but for some of your listeners, there's an interesting, um, uh, piece about buprenorphine as far as when it hits the different receptors in the brain and not to dive in too deep, but the kappa receptor, which is different than the opioid or mu receptor, uh, the kappa receptor, when it's, uh, activated makes you depressed i guess right makes you dysphoric Mm -hmm. and buprenorphine has a secondary effect of antagonizing or or turning off that receptor uh and so people will say that it has this mild antidepressant effect in fact i think it's even being studied for that Mm -hmm. um i've seen that in practice as well where and i'm not sure if it's if it's you're just leveling the playing field for folks that are doing that roller coaster like you're saying between stimulants downers stimulants and that you've just really given them an opportunity to to just be feel normal mm-hmm. and to have this leveling so that maybe the 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 drive to do the meth or the roller coaster they were on going from the meth to the opioids it's it just has lost its draw mm-hmm. not not as much for the 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 person that's habitually been doing it and has a pretty serious um uh, behavioral component to mm-hmm. to their use of meth because meth i think has a big behavioral piece to it we can talk about i hope uh, but I agree with you. Buprenorphine has been a lifesaver. Um, and if I can tell the listeners real fast, you just a quick, quick history with it. So this all kind of started back in the, the late fifties and sixties with methadone. And we just, we found out that if you gave people methadone that were addicted to heroin, uh, they died less, like a lot less. <laughs> and they got, and they actually, you know, it was almost 90% decrease in HIV or excuse me, hepatitis. And then as they, we got into the eighties, HIV and, um, basically people weren't dying. Uh, it was messy. It, there, there's some ugliness to it. There was some, there was, uh, uh, there was some unscrupulous things done out there that gave it a kind of a bad name. But as someone that cut their teeth in a methadone treatment clinic, probably 20 years ago, uh, gosh, it worked. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't get me wrong. 20, 30% of people were probably not engaged and maybe taking advantage of the system, but 60, 70% were soccer moms getting their lives back were, 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 nurses, lawyers, uh, city council members, uh, plumbers, you know, these are people that are just working and they did get their lives back. So the, the, the problem was, was that it wasn't socio or, uh, demographically that, that fun to go to a methadone <laughs> clinic. Um, That's a good way yeah. <clears throat> and so it, it, a lot of people f- weren't getting help. And then in 2000, we, they, uh, Clinton signed an act that allowed us to use buprenorphine in the offices. And buprenorphine is a flavor like methadone, but it's, it has some differences. And we could talk about that if you want. Being able to do this in the, in the privacy of your own office, mm-hmm. giving someone an opioid, I'll make a different opioid, it's different than methadone, uh, has statistically, from my understanding, has raised the this recovery success rate from the 20 percentages that we were seeing in the nineties up to the 40, 50, even 60%. Mm-hmm. And that's unheard of in the addiction fields. Um, buprenorphine has been a, has been a godsend tool and it's a tool, which we could talk about yeah. more if you want to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I'm curious, Jeremy, I'd like to, a couple things on this. Um, this, the buprenorphine suboxone topic is, uh, it's interesting coming back to goals. So when I, I ask people, what are your goals? What are you thinking about now that you're a year clean, 18 months clean? Almost everybody has that I work with has some timeline. I want to be off Suboxone in two months. I want to be off Suboxone in six months. I want to be off Suboxone tomorrow. Or it, every almost everyone has this. And 
uh, and what I usually get to do is kind of come back to this more functional idea. Well, but how will we know when it's time? Not, not, you know, date wise. So, you know, what I, what I usually tell people is, look, I think we'll know it's time to come off Suboxone when you're not craving opioids, when you're deeply connected in your life, you have tons of accountability, when you know that if you got a text saying, come over right now, I got 30s of oxycodone right now, that you could say, no, mm-hmm. I'm good. When you don't need that bulletproof vest anymore, you can go out in the world and the opioid bullets are flying around and you're like, I'm not even, I'm not going there. So uh, again, back to this goal idea, I'm, I feel like I'm constantly trying to shift my folks on Suboxone and buprenorphine to let's think about what your life would look like when it's time to come off versus this sort of, what I would say is kind of arbitrary, oh, it should be X number of months and then magically I should not need it. But yeah, what are your thoughts on that about how how long people stay on it, what you coach people? My experience is that whenever you put a date on something, it inevitably has a poor outcome. Mm-hmm. That has just been my experience anecdotally, but also in talking to other colleagues. Um, this is a perfect opportunity to kind of make this diabetes analogy mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, when I talk to a patient, and I think you would agree, it's not about being on buprenorphine or not, or suboxone or not. It's about getting to the goals that they that they discussed, like you were just 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 saying. Buprenorphine is often thrown around in some circles as like, well, you just need a couple of years of it, and that's all you need, and then you know you can get off it. I couldn't agree with you more in what you're saying. If you make the analogy with diabetes, so let's back up for a second. So we now know in the early 2000s and late 90s. If you do a PET scan on somebody that has a long-term addiction, uh, and this can be alcohol, this could be opioids, this could be benzos, this isn't this this could be stimulants or meth, coke, it doesn't just have to be heroin. Um, long-term ab- abuse of those meta- of the, of those drugs, uh, they cause changes. There are objective changes on PET scans. It doesn't mean you're broken. It just means that there's changes. And that's kind of how we diagnose disease, right? Is objective changes on imaging. Does it respond to some sort of chronic disease management? So the same way that someone wouldn't make insulin, and I gave them insulin for their diabetes. What's my goal? My goal is not to get them off insulin. My goal is to make sure their sugars are such that they're not going to have a heart attack. They're not going to go blind. They're not going to have kidney failure. Same idea. And so what I would say to a patient is often... I don't care if we use this for a week, a month, a year, 10 years for the rest of your life. Right now, at this junction at least, this is probably that first 18 months, right? This is scaffolding for you. Mm-hmm. So let's start filling the scaffolding, whether that's marriage therapy or divorce or Lexapro for the anxiety or talking to that counselor or EMDR trauma work or ketamine work with, with Dr. Heacock. Or, I mean, in other words, Let's start filling in the holes to create that successful recovery plan that you're talking about. But let's be clear right now, you are in recovery. You are successful right now. And if you go shoot, if you go shoot heroin in the parking lot and then come back and tell me, but survive that and come back into the room and tell me you are still successful Mm -hmm. because you are still engaged in the treatment. You are still part of the plan. I'm on the team. I'm on this journey with you. Mm -hmm. So let's do it together. The role of buprenorphine similar to kind of insulin because you really don't know, right? You don't know until they're actually off the medicine. If they got that text, if they biochemically have enough tools in their tool shed to be able to say, I'm not coming over and doing those thirties. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's just like diabetes in that way. So in other words, I have the, the, the person, the diabetes, that's a vegetarian. 
that's a marathon runner. And for some reason, they're still on insulin, right? And you could go through all the different reasons, right? And then there's the person that had diabetes, they got on medicine, you put, ended up putting them on insulin, they're a little overweight, and then they just stopped drinking soda. And all of a sudden, they got off their insulin. That's all they had to do. And so those are two, those are two people that had the same presentation with sugars and how we got to insulin. Same idea. The idea that it's just more complex than that. You know, so in other words, telling somebody, well, I'm fine to be on that team with you to, to help you taper off this medicine and I'll, I'll do it. You'll, I'll help you do it successfully. But remember what our goals are and remember what your life was like. And does the benefit outweigh the risk? Same with insulin. It's expensive or not. I mean, it used to be expensive. It's a pain in the butt. You, you have to inject all that different stuff, but they're in the, they're in the hospital less. Mm-hmm. You know, their wife's not dragging them into with D- DKA into the, into the ER. So I think that it's, it's important to continuously frame that debate in a way, not to say, I want you on this for the rest of your life. I have, you and I agree that we have no agenda about keeping people on the medicine. Our agenda is about keeping people alive mm-hmm. and that they don't go down the rabbit hole because unfortunately they don't, there's not that many opportunities or chances you have, especially with fentanyl out there, heroin and benzos. Uh, high alcohol use, you know, like with opiates, there's just not a lot. You don't, no one has nine lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's move to your third, third, third thing that works. Well, I think that uh, since we're just talking about Suboxone, I'm going to, I'm going to speak to that. The idea that um, attention to some biochemistry. So what I'm saying there is, is that when you, when as medical providers, when we first meet somebody, right, we are thinking a little bit about the medicines because that's our spoke on the wheel. You can't help it. You know, that's kind of what our heads go, where our heads go. I'll tell you that when I first meet a patient, I do create a little circle and I write a little like pie and I make a tiny little sliver and I write biochemistry. Mm-hmm. And I say to them, we're going to talk about some medicines. The whole point of these medicines are hopefully to level the playing field for you. But let's be clear. The reason that we're talking about them is because there has been some sort of biochemical insult or some sort of injury. And you gotta, you gotta embrace that. And I'm not trying to say that you don't, that, you know, there are people out there that can't be successful, uh, with, uh, without medicine. I think they can be, but it's not about with medicine, without, it's just about whatever you need to get to your goals. So in other words, the idea that people that kind of ignore that, well, I might be getting into the five things that don't work, but the people that ignore that and say, well, I just, I'm telling you, I've had a, they have a really severe history. I've had histories of overdoses and hospitalizations and rehab and, and things really haven't stuck. Um, but I don't want to take any medicine. Mm-hmm. I think that's fine in the way that you said that you got to be clear about their goals. But to enter into a stable recovery plan for the psychological pieces, the social pieces, emotional, psychiatric in some cases, uh, untreated pain in a lot of cases, those all need to be addressed. And if you're doing the roller coaster up and down, up and down every day, with heroin or, or, or opioids or pills, it's really hard to get traction with any of those other psychosocial, emotional strategies. I'm not saying you can't, but not everyone can go to rehab for 30 days or 60 days. Not everyone can go to detox. In fact, the majority don't. And that's, a, that's another conversation about how we value that as a society. So I think that it's important to speak to, uh, to a patient to say, please acknowledge or try to challenge yourself to understand that there has been some sort of biochemical injury and that 
it will help you and give you a better opportunity if you enter that. Now, enter that understanding, yeah. whether that's Suboxone, whether that's Camprol, whether that's you know Naltrexone, mm-hmm. whether whether it's using um, SSRIs for anxiety and depression. I mean, it's a similar idea. It's just let me help you just get your feet under you. Yeah, I like yeah. that you show a graphic because I, I think a lot of people come to docs and they're worried that we're just going to have one hammer and everything looks like a nail and that's meds and that we're just going to medicate everybody. But I like, um, I do something similar, but I think it's, I'll often like draw a little jigsaw puzzle and I'll say like over here, this piece, like this is meds. Yeah. Potentially like it's a piece, but it's just one, there's, it's a big, big puzzle. Yeah. And, and just like diabetes, you give somebody insulin, get their sugars out. You still have to talk to them about exercise. They still need to figure out how to work on their nutrition. In fact, if they don't and they keep eating poorly don't exercise, keep smoking. They have the same heart attacks and strokes that someone that didn't have the insulin. So it's very similar. I mean, you can give people buprenorphine and they can stabilize their lives. But to create a really long-term recovery plan, gosh, we you know, it takes takes mm-hmm. a team, mm-hmm. takes a village with all of us. Yeah. You know, which I think kind of leads into my third item that works for substance abuse treatment. I said number 3 mentorship/sponsorship/community. And what I mean by that is this, you know, I'll often ask people, hey, have you been to 12-step meetings or AANA? You know, a lot of people say, oh, I went, didn't work. But in my mind, the most important follow-up question is, did you work with a sponsor? Because if you just go to 12-step meetings, for example, but you don't have a sponsor, like, it's like a pizza with no sauce. You know, it's like you're missing a key component because while there is real value in the community of meetings, for example the the mentorship the support the partnership the connection and affection of someone like an a sponsor an a sponsor i think that's the special sauce i really do i mean i think working steps is great and going to meetings is great and everything but we change through relationship we change through relationship and um you know, i'm reminded of a guy i was working with a few years ago and he came in just kind of broke down on my couch and he said Everyone in Fort Collins does math. Everyone does math. And I just laughed. I was like, what? He's like, everyone does math. I said, I don't know anyone who does math. Well, I actually know a lot of people in my practice. He said, how could you not know anyone? Who... I said, my friends are all like runner biker dudes. And we laughed about that. But, but the thing was, like, he's so trapped in his math world because he only knows people who does math. And I think one of the things that's so powerful about community slash mentorship sponsorship is you find someone who literally is going to take you under their wing and say, there's a different way. Like I was there and there's a path and that's how we change. I would challenge that's as vital as buprenorphine to an extent. I mean, (laughs) I don't have a ranked list. Right. I I think that that's just, I agree with you completely. I mean, whether, and and we can get into the, whether it's 12 step, non 12 step, but the idea of, of someone that has walked in these shoes that is unconditionally, non-judgmentally, uh, just choosing to be a mentor, friend, someone like that. I don't know how it, how you can picture what your life would be if you don't give yourself that opportunity. People do it. I think the folks that have been able to do it, you know, have that really good social support. Like they have that really supportive spouse that's really educated and and gets it, or, or sibling or friend or something like that. But I agree with you. I think that the example of how this can be done. They don't, folks don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. This is a very isolating, uh, 
hopeless condition to a lot of people because I mean, we can get into this, but the idea of the stigma out there is just terrible so that even medical professionals don't talk about this. Primary care often thinks they don't have enough tools to treat it. Emergency room docs, think about it. You come in with a diabetic emergency, you're admitted. You come in with an overdose, you're sent home after you're stabilized. Our society doesn't value that. So you're being sent that message everywhere. So by the time you get into seeing you or me, there's no example of how this could work. So I agree with you completely. I think mentorship in some ways is vital, mm-hmm. if, po- if possible. Yeah. Okay, what's your fourth? Hmm. Uh, in, um, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to kind of keep going with what you were just saying there because it's about people. And that the, we, we talked earlier about uh, your team. But just in general, this kind of speaks as kind of stealing your thunder a little bit, is that I've never met someone that has been able to do this successfully long-term alone, ever. Uh, and I've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, people need people. Mm-hmm. Even sometimes the wrong people, you know, <laughs> so that you could so you could figure out how to change and rattle your cage and make it different. Yeah. Uh, but I've never met anyone that can do it alone. Um, and that and and sometimes and we see this in the clinics at Front Range too. Is that um you know there's a there's a there's a it's not there's different demographics out there, right? So you have populations that have some of these resources, have people in their lives, but there's a lot of people that are that don't that have mental illness or homeless, and they just never were able to create these relationships, and they are they're everywhere. And they need help. And sometimes that, just that initial seeing you or the counselor or the case manager or what we take pride in is even the front, the front staff that is making their schedule, talking to them on the phone, patting them on the back on the way out. They've never had that. They've never had that support. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've heard, you know, the reason I came back in was because the person that was scheduling me told me I did a really good job. Mm-hmm. And they, and it's not the doc, it wasn't the counselor. So the, the idea of just having people that are willing to engage with you on this, that aren't judging you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people need people. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Let's see, number four on my list, what works? I said full-time work. Um, Staying busy. Yeah, you know, my first one was accountability. And full-time work is definitely accountability. Plenty of functioning addicts out there. Plenty of people you know, doing drugs in the bathroom at work or in the parking lot, but it's harder. It's harder. It's harder because one is, you know, not all, but most substances of abuse tend to lead to major sleep disruption and sleep disruption tends to lead to sheer misery and emotional mental breakdown and, and work problems. So, um, I so worry for people I see who, uh, have a lot of money who have a trust fund who have enabling parents, who have worked and saved a lot of money so I don't need to work for a while, who are on military disability. People who don't have the accountability of full-time work, almost like you're saying, you haven't seen anybody really get clean and sober and stay that way alone. I struggle. I don't know that I can think of anyone I've worked with who's been able to stay clean and sober without full-time work. I I just, you know, even Freud said it, love and work like that. That's the human experience. So I think people are often surprised when, you know, definitely by the first or second meeting with folks who are struggling with this, I'll say, if you don't have a full-time job, you have to have one. I don't care what it is. You have to get busy because if you just wake up and you just have to be in your mind, 
Yeah, because there's interesting research. You're probably aware of this. Like the average strong craving is like, what, 30 seconds to four minutes or something. So I tell people, you're having a really strong craving at work. You know, it's going to pass within a few minutes. But if you're at home, you could easily pick up your phone, text who, yeah. you, who you need. And so off to the races. So I, I hammer that home. You know, I often try to tell my patients, look, in general, I try to tell you, I'm trying not, trying not to tell you what to do. You have to work full time. Like if you have addiction problems, <laughs> that you, I am gonna tell you, you, <laughs> you have to work full time. And if you don't, you're probably going to die or end up in a really bad place. I would, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, I can't tell you how many patients that I've seen that have the trust funds. And as soon as I walk in the room and I, I find out that they are financially independent and they're 27 years old and they're day trading. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Um, and they don't have to, they don't have to work. Yeah. And, um, I've often seen it get worse or they're not there for the right reasons or they're not there on their own accord. I'm not saying that those folks don't get better, but I will say that I have, I agree with you that it's often needs a little more intervention. It's not just, Hey, let me put you on some buprenorphine and talk to the counselor. It's often Dr. Heacock needs to see you. You need daily groups. You need a counselor. You're talking to twice a week. You should probably consider doing some urine, you know, Mm -hmm. diagnostics for yourself with someone that cares about you a couple times a week your spouse should go into Alan, you know, like all these different things that, that it just, it seems to scale up very quick. I hate to cookie cutter it like that, but I, that's been my observation too. You got to be busy. Yeah. You know, and it's not, it doesn't have to be this kind of, um, just a second what you're saying. It doesn't have to be this kind of ethereal groovy. You need purpose in life. And if, unless you have purpose, everything's going to fall apart for you. I mean, that, that puts a lot of pressure on somebody that's never, had that mm-hmm. you know and they're in their 30s and 40s and they're like i just don't want to drink myself to death you mm-hmm. know i don't want to be senator i just want to not drink myself to death uh and and the full-time position kind of cures that in a way like it, it, it's like okay you, you you doesn't you don't have to do something that's so noble you know you don't have it just just work mm-hmm. you know be busy and i agree with you i think that the folks that have bought into that uh, there's just less, there's less time for things to go south for them. And then they start to see, start to taste a little bit of some sobriety and, uh, and hopefully it, it's attractive mm-hmm. enough to keep moving. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your fifth and final thing that works? Fifth and final environment has mm. So it's a little bit, it has to do with team, has to do with people and stuff like that, but environment in general, I think that this kind of gets back to the goals a little bit. Um, it's not fair to someone with diabetes that's untreated to tell them they need to continue to work at a candy store. It's not nice. It's unkind. It doesn't mean that they can't control themselves, but there is this kind of glycemic wall that folks with diabetes, like they can't, it's hard for them to get out of bed if their sugar's not doing well. And sometimes doing something like an orange soda or something like that gets them out of bed, gets them to work. You can see how the cycle continues like that. Same idea. I mean, the idea that, I mean, how many folks have you met that will say, well, I'm a bartender and I want to continue to be a bartender. And we do shots all the time after work, before work, I'm starting to do them during work. Mm. And my, my boss likes to do them with me. My, my people I work with, they're my best friends. We do it all. We, we love doing it, but I got to cut down on my drinking. Mm. You know, it doesn't mean that they can't pull it off. I just have not seen it that lot often. Uh, so the idea of be kind to yourself create an environment that's supportive of, of you creating this recovery plan that you want to create. Maybe you can revisit bartending later, mm-hmm. but 
the idea that you're going to just keep forcing yourself. It's like a desensitization thing. Like you just feel like, well, I'm just going to keep traumatizing myself to see if I can pull this off. And you'd be able to speak to that, I think, better than me with how 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 that trauma, like that desensitization cycle can happen. But I've seen that. Like I just got to prove to myself that I'm, I, I'm not going to do it. Ah, that didn't work last night. I'm going to try again tonight. Um, why? Why? Mm. Create an environment that's supportive of you. It's not easy because sometimes folks... And I, and I totally appreciate this, what I'm about to say. This is their family, right? I mean, often, you know, your friends are some of the closest people to you. So people that you're doing drugs with, um, they're your family, the people you love. Doesn't mean you don't love them anymore. It doesn't mean that they're not, you don't want to be with them. But to be successful with this, there are some hard choices that need to get made. And sometimes people do need to change their job or change their spouse or change their, yeah. you know, what they're doing. Because it's just too much. It's too, it's it's almost too unkind to you. To you say, well, you know, you're going to try to stop drinking, but your wife is really still drinking a lot, and she has no intention of stopping. And you guys, your whole relationship is kind of built on that. That's pretty challenging mm-hmm. to say to go home. There's vodka everywhere, and I'm going to ask you to try to hope these medicines maybe help you, and you use some of the tools you learned today. But you're having dinner with your wife. Mm-hmm. Who you love? Who's your partner? You know, yeah. it's, it's tough. So there's a lot of descriptions about environment. Yeah. <clears throat> I totally hear you on that. I've told a few of my patients that, uh, but when thinking about environment and relationship, you know, and these are people who are in relationship with people with you know, serious substance problems. And I've, I've said to my patients, like, look, if my wife smoked crack every night, I would too. I luckily my wife is very healthy and doesn't do that. But if I went home every night, my wife was smoking crack. I'm pretty sure I would smoke with her. Thank God she doesn't. It really matters who we hang out with. It matters who we're in relationship with. It matters where we work. It matters where we live. It matters who our roommates are. I can't tell you how often you must hear this a lot where people have new roommates and then they come back and say, well, I'm kind of back into smoking cocaine. Well, my new roommate, turns out he deals, you know. (laughs) (laughs) What? Um. But again, we're, we're all so influenceable in general as humans in community. But if you're struggling with addictive substances, yeah, and you're in an environment where that's happening, yeah. Challenging. Um, challenging. Yeah, which takes me to my fifth thing that works. I'm sounding so pharmacological today. I apologize because Suboxone was my number two. But my fifth one uh, is antabuse disulfiram. I'm a huge antabuse fan. And for those of you listening who don't know what that is, antabuse is a med that uh, inhibits the breakdown of a toxic byproduct of alcohol. So if you take antabuse and don't drink, it's like taking a sugar pill. If you take antabuse and drink, you will become violently ill. And I'm just such a big fan of this because, um, I mean, part of it is because I see it working. And part of is my own experience as a former amphetamine addict. I'm grateful every day that alcohol wasn't my thing. Because you go out to eat and they're telling you the wine specials and they're asking if you want a cocktail and you go to Super Bowl parties and they're serving alcohol, 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 alcohol. I mean, I've often thought I would rather be in, literally I'd rather be an IV heroin addict than an alcoholic because it's just in your face. You can never get away from it. I mean, nobody's offering me crack cocaine or, or heroin or oxycodone in my general day, but I'm, you see alcohol everywhere. And so if alcohol is your thing, and that's what's ruining your life or your relationships. Oh my gosh, it just feels so awful for those people. But 
there is a solution. You know, again, it's, well, I should say there's an important tool. It's not a solution, but there's something you can take that will vaccinate you against alcohol. It's called anabuse disulfiram. And it's often hard to get people to take it because if you take it, you won't drink. Or, or as one of my patients said, if you drink on anabuse, you should drive to urgent care, the ER as fast as you can, because you're going to end up there. So you might as well, you're gonna end up there you anyway. might as well start driving right away. Um, uh, it's been with a number of my patients, it's been the only thing that's been able to buy them two months, four months, six months, nine months of clean time, sober time. So they can begin to work on mentorship and community and work and changing who they hang with and just changing things because alcohol is everywhere. We're drenched in alcohol. And uh, it's interesting. I get the sense that anabuse disulfiram is not that widely used. In fact, sometimes I order it from pharmacies. They don't even have it. But I'm really curious, Jeremy, what the Front Range Clinic, what you guys all think about anabuse and you personally and where you think it fits in with treatment. Well, I think let's step back for a sec. So I think that there's a few medicines out there for alcohol, which I know you know, but for your listeners, which include naltrexone, acamprosate, and anabuse. The first two are helping with cravings. So, you know, they can help. You can get naltrexone daily or get a shot called Vivitrol or acamprosate, which is Camprol, which has some has some data that shows that folks that have a pretty significant uh, family history. So mom, dad, brother, sisters, grandma, grandpa, everyone was drinking that there is a little potentially, and I have seen this with the campersate, uh, that it almost, there's a switch that goes off where the cravings really do get affected. And for the folks that have a really heavy uh, family history, I really try to throw Camprol on board like right away because you really don't need to check anything. Kidneys, liver, it's pretty pretty uh, clean medicine. Um, Anabuse being what's called an aversive agent. In other words, if you take it, you get sick. And uh, yeah, I mean, talk about taking advantage of the whole Pavlovian mm-hmm. conditioning, right? Like, so you just start to keep, you almost trick yourself. Like, eventually you get conditioned that if you drink, you're going to get sick. Eventually alcohol looks really awful, you know? And that's that's a great goal to get to with someone that has a severe alcohol use disorder. All those all those tools are on the, on the table at Front Range. You know, our place is a little more acute care, urgent care meets addiction. So the idea of, you know, doing the liver enzymes, keeping an eye on things like that. Uh, Sometimes people see different providers between cases, I think maybe is one of the reasons that some of the times people have not used antabuse, but I will tell you that it is used at Front Range Clinic. You and I talked about maybe a provider that wasn't going to do it, but for the most part, it's it's out there and it's on the table. But I think it also comes back to what you were just saying before is um, you got to take it. Yeah, and you so you be need motivated. The, you got to yeah. need the engaged patient, you know. Now, Trexone has that advantage that you can give someone a shot that can potentially decrease the cravings. You can still drink on it, right? Mm. Uh, but people need to be engaged. They want need to want to take it. So, and I, similar to you, I've had patients that um, really were engaged with. Okay, when should I do this? Should I just do this all every day? Do it every other day? Whatever. I've even had cases where folks. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, let's call him John. <laughs> John's 27. Uh, John has a binge, alcohol binge disorder. So in other words, he doesn't necessarily drink every day, but when he does drink, we're talking ugly. Oh yeah. Well, a lot, let's say, right. A couple 12 packs, you know, handle something like that only happens when he's camping with his buddies on the weekend. Doesn't happen during the week because he's busy too. He has a full-time job. Um, we, we've been doing this for years together, me and John, where, um, he just takes anabuse on Friday afternoon mm-hmm. and he just does it through the weekend. Now he's engaged in that. His friends that he goes camping with are on his team. Talk about good friends, mm-hmm. right? And, and, uh, 
and it's really been successful for him. Yeah. Well, there's been some here, some hiccups here and there, but for the most part, that's how he uses it. But I think it really is important. Like you're saying that if the person that's engaged, it's a great tool because they're really, it's almost like they're own, they're owning their addiction. Mm-hmm. They're owning their recovery. They're, they're using the tool deliberately and purposely. And I feel like interviews really offers you that where someone can be like, I am holding the reins of this. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, and I, and, and remind me, cause I want to do a number six really fast with you <laughs> okay. is, uh, is when, when they're holding the reins of that, how empowering and, and that they've gotten past the idea. Ideally they've gotten past the shame that is associated with this, unfortunately, that people let themselves experience, that they just own the condition. They just own it. They know that when, if they're confronted with that at the party, when they're camping, whatever, it's too much for them. And they've gotten to a point finally where they feel they don't, they're tired of being unkind to themselves about it. So them using a medicine like this, is just, it's almost an affirmation mm-hmm. of, of saying, I'm not going to let this get me today because I know there's a part of me that is wants to die. That's wants to kill myself by accident. Yeah. Yeah. I have a number of people who use and abuse sort of like your patient that they take it on business trips or they take it when their family's out of town or they take it when they're going to some conference or high risk times. But I also have a number of people, this is again, I'm all about having families involved where we've used and abuse to build in accountability. So this again, maybe be an adult child living at home. And so the parents say, okay, you have to take hand abuse every day. We're going to watch you take it. Um, and we will uh, buy your car. Mm-hmm. I, have, I have a couple of families that buy their kids a bag of weed because <laughs> the parents have said it's so much better for them to be stoned than drunk because when they're drunk, they're violent. And <laughs> you so do what works. Right. So if they take their abuse every day or... I have some, all sorts of carrots and stick where the, uh, so I think you, we think of abuse as you need to be motivated to take it, or you need to be in a system where mm-hmm. there can be some accountability built in where the person thinks, okay, there's a part of me that's on board with taking this because I recognize this is helping me. And I like that I'm getting these benefits or I don't want these painful things. It's like to contingency happen. management. Yeah, almost, contingent, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I have a number of people that it works great that way. Uh, and again, what I try to talk about in the family meetings is really sell the story, a positive story. Like this is a tool, like this is not your parents punishing you. Mm-hmm. This is all of us trying to work to the goal, shared goal of not going to jail, not having the cops to come to your home, not having alcohol poisoning. Not you're right. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it's almost like buprenorphine in the way that it, it, in, in that way, even though it wouldn't make you sick if you did opiates with buprenorphine, but the idea that a parent who sees their child or their loved one puts taking the, the medicine under their tongue. Like they know they have like 24 hours of like exhaling, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that like heroin's not going to kill my son today. And so I, I'm with you. We've had treatment plans where, you know, the patient might be a little more contemplative, pre-contemplative where they're going, why they're there. They're still entering. Do I trust these folks? Do I even want to create sobriety yet? Mm-hmm. And uh, then they, then they're kind of that little bit of that forced sobriety with people that love them. Uh, it, it goes both ways, right? I mean, that other, the parent, it definitely sends that signal where they can exhale. You see your kid take an abuse or take a buprenorphine, you know, they're probably, probably not going to die from those substances yeah. that day. Yeah. Are you a seven on the Enneagram? I don't know. Yeah. Because 
a lot of ways, I think you and I are wired very similarly. We're both very eager and enthusiastic. And I actually had six too. And you said, I have a sixth, but uh, let's hear your sixth. Anyways, so you're adding to the list. Yeah, I couldn't help it. I couldn't I help it. And all, I, my, all my negative ones I are basically asked, the opposite of my positive I know, ones. that's true. So we'll probably go through those faster. Okay. But I think it is really important to actually verbalize the negative ones, even though yeah, a lot sure. of them are just the opposite. Of the yeah, positive. I got a couple. I got a couple. Okay. So six one, I just wanted to put this out there. And I think this is really important. We talk about stigma a lot. We talk about stigma in society, patients, things like that. But the, the relationship between a medical provider or counselor or person on that person's team and the person that is suffering with addiction, I can't underestimate the importance, I think, of destigmatizing drug use. Mm-hmm. We've been doing drugs in society for thousands of years. Ayahuasca root in South America, Central and South America, wine in Judeo-Christian culture, marijuana in Rastafarian culture, coca leaf down in South America. I mean, we have been using drugs and alcohol forever. We've been doing it for religious reasons to aid in, uh, in exploring the self, to, to help with treating co-occurring mental health issues, helps with anxiety. There's nothing wrong with doing drugs. And I'm an addiction doc saying that to you. <laughs> what I mean by that is, is that most people dig the feeling of a little euphoria. And if it comes externally, a drink or two or something like that, a lot of people dig it. doesn't mean that they have drug addiction. Mm-hmm. We know where all the gorillas are in Southeast Asia at any given time because they find where the poppy plants are blooming. That's actually how they sometimes track the gorillas. They didn't grow up with trauma and, 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 and mom issues and depression. They're mammals. We're mammals, right? And so there's nothing wrong with, with, with enjoying that, with wanting that. It doesn't matter who you are. The problem is, is that we don't know yet who's the most vulnerable. We don't have kind of the, the test yet. We have some genetic tests, maybe it's giving us some impression. We can do some family history kind of stuff to try to figure that out. But we don't have that great test. Like you make insulin or you don't. You make dopamine or you don't. Like we don't have that yet. So until we have that, it's hard to kind of know you know, where they're at. So I think it's so important. Like you said, like that guy, that, the patient you have that comes in and says, I just shot up in the, in the parking lot. I immediately had the same reaction. Oh, that's such great news. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I mean, that was my initial reaction when you said that because that person trusted you enough. You have destigmatized it that it's not about drug use. It's about problem use. It's about use. That's going to kill you. Because there's also different kinds of use, right? There's medicinal use, there's recreational use, there's uh, occasional use, there's habitual use, there's the doc told me to take it. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. And it's not about amount, it's about amount and context. You know, I mean, two beers in the morning before work or two beers after work. Like, and that, let's say that's all you had. That's very different. <laughs> like if you're having two, just two beers before work, why what 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 is that what did it do for you and i think take even take it one step further which i know you do with your patients which is so that guy that has two beers before work it is his medicine Mm -hmm. right so the idea of helping that patient right there know that you're on their team with destigmatizing this we're not talking about drug use drugs are fun for most people and booze the idea here is is let's get to the bottom of how you don't kill yourself with these things Mm -hmm. you know and let me let me legitimize to you. I get that this stuff works. Why would you do it if it didn't work? Now, after a while, you have addiction, which means that you need to do it to, so you don't get sick. That's something different. But the idea that somebody is using, whether they're smoking a joint or shooting heroin or taking a shot, it 
does something medicinal. Society has made it that we have, we have made this good, this bad, this legal, this illegal. This is yucky. This isn't, this isn't yucky. It's okay to have a couple shots, but it's not okay to slam heroin. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But the reason that some, most folks are doing it is not to like get their mom mad or piss off their spouse or to destroy their lives. I've never met anybody, which I'm sure you would agree with that wants to be addicted. <laughs> you know, I've never met anyone because this is just great. I mean, I love my addiction. I can't wait to tell you more yeah. about it. Let's just talk about my diabetes and allergies. Mm -hmm. Often they don't feel like they can talk about it. And when they do talk about it, they're scared that you're going to judge them because they like doing drugs and there's nothing wrong with liking to do. You got to validate that. Well, you know, Mr. Jones, that might, do you, do you agree that when you, when you do that stuff, it helps you with your anxiety, you know? And then they start to unravel that. And then I guess that's part of the goal, right? Is to try to figure out different ways we can help them fill that bucket. That's not going to kill them. Hence that idea of giving them a bag of weed. I mean, that's probably, <laughs> yeah. not, I, you know, that's an extreme example, but yeah. it's same. It's, it's an idea, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I know that boost is really helping you, but you know what? Why don't we try this Lexapro and counseling and some meditation and, 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 and let me help you out and see how that goes and, you know, save your liver. Mm hmm Okay. I like that. Um, let's do what does not work. And again, some of these will probably be more the negative of the positive, but I think there are some issues, at least on my list we haven't talked about. So yeah, why don't you go? Well, I only got one that's kind of not the opposite okay. of the other, but I'll, 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 uh, I'll go there. The idea, and you, you mentioned this earlier, the idea of creating an arbitrary time frame on recovery. Mm -hmm. So when folks come in and they go, well, I just want to take Suboxone for a year, or I just want to be in groups for, for six months, or I just want to take that medicine and have that sponsor for, for two years, or they have, they kind of have a time limit. Mm -hmm. And, and this is really common. You see outside of our circles, right? So in probation and parole, uh, ju justice, uh, a lot of places where they kind of think that too. Like, you know, let's just get this in your rear view mirror and you'll be cool. Well, if we're really going to swallow, this is a potential brain condition that we have objective changes in the brain with people that have this kind of hardcore that have severe cases. If we're really going to believe that and, and, and walk that walk and talk that talk, well, we would never say to someone with insulin or with diabetes, you should just get off your insulin in two years. When should you get off their insulin? When they're not going to have a heart attack and die. If you go off it, mm -hmm. when you're not going to lose your toes, how do we do that? We look at your sugars. So we slowly go down and see if we can maybe get you on medicine, or maybe you could do this with diet and exercise. If it works, great. If it doesn't, great. You know, so the idea that it does it, recovery, whatever your treatment plan looks like, it's whatever works because again, we don't have a cure. So the, uh, so I think you kind of, and I think as medical professionals, we sometimes have to like, we're the bad guys that we have to, we're the ones that sometimes have to set up that at the beginning. Like, let's be clear. This is potentially a lethal condition. So we're not talking about allergies here. We're, this is really serious. So as we go forward with this, again, going back to the goals, let's get clear about your goals and I'll work with you if you want to, you know, have some time frame when you do this and do that. But if you're not meeting your goals, be open to just continuing their successful recovery plan, whatever that means. Medicine, no medicine, counseling, no counseling, alone, not alone. You know, mm -hmm. don't put a time frame on it. Don't put a year. Don't put two years. This is a chronic condition. What do you need to do to stay healthy for the rest of your life so that you can see your grandkids, so you can walk your, your kids down the aisle, so you can do those things that you wanted to do when maybe you, you know, you had some more time on your hands. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, let's see. My first thing that does not work is enabling. And let me discuss this as you have see, you see a lot in your work too. When you work with families, when you work with people that love addicts, it's so hard for them to suss out kind of enabling versus support. You know, just last week, I got a call from a mom of one of my addict patients like, oh, he needs a therapist and oh, he needs some another clonazepam refill and oh, he didn't do the last session with you because he slept in. You know, this guy's like 25. And I said to mom, I said, "You have you heard of Al-Anon? She's like, I've heard of that. I said, you, you like so many people who love addicts, you are trying so hard to help and you're making it way worse because he has a free place to stay. He's a free room and board. I said, so he's 25, you know, going on 13. Why would he go to work when he has everything that he needs, including a mom to pay for his no-show appointment with me last time? So I'm, I'm talking to people, families, patients about this idea. You need to let your loved one, your addict loved one, feel all the benefits of their good decisions and all the pain of their bad decisions. You need to think with every dollar you spend, with every decision you make, you need to think, is this helping them become stronger and fly away and leave the nest? Or is this making it easier for them to just stay in the nest and for me to drop worms in their mouth? And stay addicted. Stay addicted. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not, I mean, this is why Al-Anon exists. I mean, it's, this is a very complicated issue, but if you have an addict with good, good, realistic goals and you have a family that's enabling them or loved ones, it's not going to work. And again, this is a complicated issue. And one of the reasons, um, one of the main reasons I see people fail in addiction treatment, fail to reach their goals or fail to stay alive is because they have an enabling, enabling family who loves them so much they can't mm. let their addict feel the pain of their bad decisions. How hard that is. Mm. You know, I mean, I, how hard that is to convince a parent that statistically your child will die less often if you put them on the street versus keeping them in your basement. How difficult that is as a parent to, to buy into that, that stat. And that's, and I think I completely agree with you. I mean, as, as you and I are both parents, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, saying to my kid, even though we know the science behind it, um, you can't sleep here tonight. Mm-hmm. I know you've had this, you have this terrible addiction, but we had an agreement and that, you know, or, you know, ideally that, that you were giving them a better shot at success by like, I loved how you just said that experiencing the worst consequences of this, which is getting kicked out of their house or, or affecting the relationship with their mom, their dad, their sibling, their spouse. That's tough. That's tough love. But you and I both know because of from the literature and from our patients, I mean, this is all over the literature. They do much worse. They do much worse if we, if they're enabled and it, and it's, and I, and this is where I think that education is important with what you do with the family and things like that. And we do with case management in the family which is really trying to educate the family. This is how you can best help somebody. And that being patient with that mom, you know, like, okay, let's keep working on that. Cause I mean, gosh, I mean, that's a piece of your heart, mm-hmm. you know? And you're, wait, wait, doc, you're telling me that I, I got to kick, I got to tell them to go sleep on the street. Well, that's where I found them. That's when I brought them to you. Mm-hmm. You know, well, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. 
or the call from the parent. I get this a lot. Should I go bail so-and-so out of jail? Shit, no. And I would say no, no. And it, it kind of reminds me of an episode uh, we did earlier this year about a woman struggling with horrific, Lena, struggling with horrific addiction. And she said, you know, at one point I asked her, and what are all the things that got you clean and sober? And on her top four list was jail. Mm-hmm. And she said, this is not a PC thing to say. And she said, I don't think we should lock up addicts. But in my case, going through multiple horrific opioid withdrawals, and not my family not bailing me out and suffering like I'd never thought suffering was possible. By the last time I did that, she's like, I will not do that again. Whatever I do, I can I cannot go through that again. It was so awful. I How have, powerful. That's real powerful. Yeah. And incarceration is, a, is it, we always say like, oh, that's the worst and you don't get treatment. And even though we're trying to change that our front range, uh, getting it into into the jails. But I think the stat is something like 15, 20% actually do find some sobriety after getting locked up with no treatment. So that shows you how, how crappy we were doing beforehand mm-hmm. with no treatment. They were hitting the similar statistics we were seeing before buprenorphine and things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. What's your number two? Number two. Uh, well, I kind of feel bad. This is kind of just the opposite. It's, it's doing it alone, mm. you know? So the folks that come in and they just say, you know, I, I, I can't tell my mom, I can't tell my spouse, but I got to get on top of this. I got to get on top of it. There's, t- it's too complex. There's too, there's too many variables, at least in my, our, my experience where the, the person that says they're going to do it alone. And then first of all, it puts a lot of account of, it makes you feel like you got to really, you know, come in and save the day where you think you got to be really clear with someone right away. Like I've not met someone that's been able to do this alone, mm-hmm. you know, or at least for a long period of time to sustain it. Um, it's a very isolating disease. And so people I think are ashamed in front of their family members. Uh, and I, so I saw a lot of what we're doing is that education on that first visit. I think even more than the medications I'm saying to that person, can we find one person? Mm -hmm. Yeah. My number two, yeah, ties in with something we already talked about. My number two is too much free time. Mm -hmm. Um, that's an opposite of full time. Yeah. (laughs) Um, what's your number three? Um, thinking the environment doesn't matter. In other words, in other words like I got this, right? Like I got this. I'm just going to go back in and keep yeah. being a bartender. Okay. Actually, my number three, we, uh, what doesn't work, we, we haven't specifically talked about. I wrote using weed as a substitute, marijuana as a substitute. And I, I, put, I put a condition on that. I, I wrote parentheses, for some people it works. And, uh, I did an episode on this in season one, a guy, the only thing that's ever kept him off meth consistently is weed and he's tried everything, but that does keep him away from, from meth. So that's a good harm reduction approach. It's like weed works unless it doesn't. Yeah. But I think for so many, the, the vast majority of people I see, a lot of them come in with the goal. What is your goal? My goal is not to do pills or meth. I just want to do weed. I hear that all the time. I just want to smoke weed. And I just don't see that working because if you think about it, that I, I talk about this with my patients a lot, the best thing about weed is the worst. The best thing about weed is it gives you the buckets. Whatever is weighing you down, whether it's like I do a paper, or I live in a crappy basement, or my parents are driving me crazy, or I have no money, or I wish I had a girlfriend. I mean, you, you know, marijuana can just make it you know, every little thing's going to be all right. You know, that's, but because it gives you that, the fuck it's, it also 
makes it very difficult to move forward. You know, if you're kind of an addictive, compulsive sort of person, and you're just, just quote unquote, going to shift from your potentially lethal substance to weed, it's not surprising that that may just take up so much of your life. Yeah, it doesn't kill you, which is great, because you said, as docs, our number one goal is that people don't die and don't kill other people. But in terms of moving forward with a meaningful, connected life, I see a lot of people struggle with that if, if they're going to try to use weed as a, um, as a solution. As, or know, medicine. As their medicine, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would agree with that. I would want to step back for a second and say, you know, when you're coming from the harm reduction perspective and, and us not having great statistics on making huge progress with folks, I'm, you know, I, I'm with you. Like the parentheses thing, the idea of if you're smoking weed and you're not shooting heroin. That's a win. That's a win. Big win. Right? Yeah. yeah. But there's a level of self-deception when you, I think people can definitely fall into when they have the disease, a condition, and they suffer with addiction in general. And so, you know, as we're talking about this, the thing that comes up for me a lot, and I think you probably say this to patients too, is that it's not the drug. It's the person using the drug. I mean, are there people out there that were able to smoke heroin on the weekends? I don't know. I didn't meet them, but I mean, I mean, but I I mean, there's some, you know, there's people out there that are able to do things recreationally. Probably two or three. (laughs) Uh, So point being is, is that I think that it's, there is a level of self-deception that can occur. If someone really is suffering with addiction, like real, real diagnosed addiction. And they're trying to kind of play that. Well, I just, I just want to smoke, smoke pot. They might be successful and not dying and not overdosing, maybe finding some sort of harm reduction strategy that treats their anxiety or boredom or something like that so that they're not actually using some lethal drug. And so you and I would call that a win in terms of today. They're not dying. Mm -hmm. In context of us trying to be more holistic, being medical providers that are trying to give them strategies to heal, to create long-term processes that really uh, embrace their addiction, especially if you're going to start to getting into trauma and anxiety and depression and things like that, I'm guessing. Um, I think there's a level of self-deception that occurs. Um, we have time with that, you know, which is, which is something that we often don't, you and I don't have sometimes with people. We're making decisions day to day. You need to come back tomorrow. I'm worried about you kind of thing. Uh, with weed, I think you have a little more of that time. And then, and then it kind of gets down to that kind of back to those goals, which is like, you want to heal or you want to just not do heroin, mm-hmm. you know? And some people are like, I just don't want to do heroin. Yeah. So maybe our job is to continuously kind of put a mirror up just to say, you know, I, there is a level of health now that you could actually achieve that is, is more fulfilling mm-hmm. or, or allows you to really create, you know, be more deeper in your relationships, or you could finally write that book you wanted to write, or you get that job you wanted to get. And if you notice, this has been kind of difficult for you <laughs> since you've been waking and baking every morning for the last four years. And by the way, congratulations, not doing heroin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it's, I, I think it's case by case. I do think that there is a little bit of some self-deception out there, which mm-hmm. I think I would agree with, that with people that are really do suffer with addiction they are so they are deceiving themselves a little bit that 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 the marijuana doesn't do kind of something similar to the brain it brings you it continues the cycle it continues that kind of addictive cycle um you can probably say similar things even with tobacco so that there's some there's some schools of thought and 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 you know you and i i think tend to maybe play on the harm reduction circles a lot because we do with some more severe cases and heroin and things like that um 
but there's some schools of thought out there in, in ASAM, American Society of Addiction Medicine, that speak to that even the nicotine dependence is this kind of um, drop of a stone in the still water of this kind of balanced home, uh, dopaminergic or mesolimbic mm-hmm. or lizard brain system. In other words, you're, you're still artificially bringing something in there that is challenging you getting back to balance. And there's different schools of thought. I mean, when you go to some of these conferences, there's people like, oh, you got to get people off everything. Smokes, tobacco, or it's not even like worth it. And then you have the harm reduction folks that are just like, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> you right, know? That's you and me. Yeah, right. Yeah, you don't know, die. Yeah, don't yeah. die. Don't die first. And, and that does make sense with that circuitry that you're talking about. But, um, you know, like we all, this comes back again to the whole social thing. But we're we not talking about that with caffeine, are we? You know? Or having a beer at night. I mean, like, it, there really is that social piece that comes yeah. into it. That any drug, whether it's a drug of abuse, one that could kill you or not, um, it does something different. It's, it, it rewires you if you're doing it every day. Mm-hmm. So that if you stop, you got to get back to, got to get gets back to normal. And that takes time. Right now we think with some of the more hardcore drugs, it takes maybe even a year or two. And then with the people that have been doing it for a really long time, sometimes we see that things don't get better. Hence the reason for maybe long-term Suboxone. Yeah. Because maybe they don't return. I just digressed a bit there. Yeah. Sorry. All right. Give me your last two. Last two. Um, unclear with goals, which is the opposite <laughs> of the other one, right? Um, but, you know, I, th- I think that it, that is important. You know, people that will say stuff like, well, I just don't want to be dependent, but I want to be able to just do that on the weekends or stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. you got to get clear. You got to get clear. And the it's other... like when people tell me, I hear this a lot, I want to be happy. And I, I tell people, <laughs> no one's depending happy. how sassy I'm feeling, <laughs> I'll say like, well, you should do drugs if you want to be happy. <laughs> No, but I'll say like, that's not a goal. Yeah. You know, a, it's an, an a, unsustainable goal. Right. The happiness is a secondary, is a byproduct of meaning and connection. And, but if happy is the goal, then you're probably heading down some kind of addiction route. I don't have enough medicine for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. What's your other one? Uh, opposite. The, the first one, which is surround, um, you surround yourself with a team that is, mm-hmm. that has conditional expectations and mm-hmm. is pretty judgmental and, people that just kind of don't get it. And, you know, I see this even in married couples a lot where, where the spouse will sit there and then the other, and then the partner will sit there in the other chair and say, kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I took Percocet for a few months when I had back surgery, I was fine. Why did you go down the rabbit hole with this? And they just never buy into the vulnerability and the genetic vulnerability and the perhaps maybe some of the seeds of why this happened. And, uh, that person just doesn't have that unconditional love. Mm-hmm. I mean, at home from their most important person in their lives, it's, it's always really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. My last two are actually related to what we talked about. So my number four was, um, hanging with the old crowd. This idea that you're the average of your five closest friends, you know, interesting sociological research shows, you know, we can predict BMI and political party and activities and divorce rates and, substance use by who you hang out with and which then ties in one of my last one um number five things thing that will not get you clean and sober is living alone you know we we as you said you know we're we're mammals we're we're social tribal primates the number one way the way we torture our worst people the worst of the worst we put them in solitary confinement what do all addicts do? They put themselves in solitary confinement. Mm. And again, when I'm sort of thinking about prognosis and treatment planning with people, when they live alone, I just think, oh, how is this going to work? It's, it's not that it can't work. It's so much harder 
That's just not the way we're wired. Reminds me of this story. My wife talked about the saddest visit to a view to a zoo in her life. In college, she was in some some Eastern European zoo, and she went to a, the penguin exhibit. And in the penguin exhibit was one penguin. She said, just standing there in this exhibit, one penguin. And she said, "There's penguins are supposed to be together. Like they do their penguin thing. Like one <laughs> penguin." And I, one sad I, I, I know, but I still think about this when I think of my addicts living alone. I'm like, you're a solo penguin yeah. in your third floor apartment. Like, you need that, more penguins, uh, man. You, yes, <laughs> some healthy penguins, yeah. some non-meth smoking right, penguins. Right. Um, and I, I try to go to the mat with people on that as much as I can with family. Like, look, if we want to give you the best chance to be healthy, you can't live alone. I mean, arguably living alone is better than, you know, living with a meth dealer. That's probably true. But in general, again, that's how we torture people. Why are we seeing so much pain over this last year with the pandemic? I mean, yes, a half million people have died. That's horrific. Mostly what we're seeing, I think, at least in my practice, maybe your practice, is loneliness. I've never seen such loneliness. Yeah. And so much of the relapse stuff I've seen in recent months has been boredom and loneliness. Mm-hmm. I hear that over and over. Why, what happened when I was so bored? It's so lonely. Lonely is bored, bored, lonely, lonely, bored. And I just think, okay, those are, those are the, the drivers of so much unhealthy substance use. Right. There's clearly people have been taking drugs forever and always will, but unhealthy self-medication, unhealthy substance use when it's driven by loneliness or boredom. The pandemic has proven your point. Overdoses, relapses, uh, and deaths have gone up between 25 and 30% nationally and in Colorado since April of last year. Mm. It's a terrible statistic. Yeah. 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 So, Matt, imagine if you had a trust fund penguin. You guys <laughs> <laughs> just check them right oh. in. <laughs> You're going right to the hospital, man. And on that, on that trust fund penguin note, I think we should sign off because I have a bunch of more questions, some yeah. really great questions, but maybe we'll do another episode because I know this is already, uh, I think we've filled up uh, time and I think there's just some great stuff and this has been so fun. This has actually been a complete blast. So, I would love to do this yeah, again. So anytime. We'll, we'll do it again. I have some great questions. So hope that was helpful. Um, Anyway, if you're in Colorado and you need addiction treatment, Front Range Clinic is awesome. I send people there all the time. Unfortunately, my practice is very full. But Front Range Clinic gets people in right away and and saving lives. And so I'm grateful for what you do. Grateful for you too. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thank you. Yeah.